Welcome to Firmly Planted Podcast, where we are seeking to be firmly planted into the scriptures for our everyday lives. I hope you enjoy the show. Click subscribe and let's dive into God's Word together. And uh, thank you, Pastor Jeff. Uh, for allowing me to once again bring the message. Uh, it is an, always an honor and a privilege to do that. And so if you will, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13 this morning. 10 through 13 this morning. We're going to be doing a two-part uh, series, since I'll be speaking next week as well, in this idea of battle ready. Battle ready. we we'll are looking at Ephesians chapter 6. And the title of the message tonight, or this morning, is The Battle is On. The Battle is On. So Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against... If you have a pen, if you underline, if you highlight, if you need to bold that, not against that, please beg of you to do that. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Verse 13, therefore... Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Let's pray. God, we love you and God, we praise you. God, we thank you for giving us the freedom and the privilege to live in America with um, God, the freedoms that we have. God, I pray that as things change, as things become different, God, I pray that we Look to you. God, I pray that we trust in you. God, I thank you for where you have placed us. You have placed us all here for such a time as this. And God, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning and we study what this spiritual battle looks like, God, I pray that, God, that we ultimately find our rest, find our satisfaction, find our enjoyment, find our passion in Jesus. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the burial and resurrection and God, that we have our hope that will never disappoint. And God, I just pray that you speak through me this morning. God, I pray that this time of Bible study will be encouraging, challenging, and life-changing. And God, I pray for anybody, anybody here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior. God, before they leave those double doors, they will do that this morning. God, we praise you. And God, we will thank you for what you will do already. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. December 7th, 1941. Who knows what happened on that date? Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Probably one of the greatest and most surprising attacks on American soil. And it was back in World War II, and uh, this, this attack was sudden in many ways, but many historians say that America knew that Japan was going to attack at some point because everybody wanted America in the war in some ways, and America had opted out of the war for such a long time. And all of a sudden, they attacked Pearl Harbor at around 8 a.m., December 7, 1941, in Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, at that naval base. But what's amazing about this is that even though they knew an attack may be coming, they didn't know when, they didn't know where, and they didn't know how. But yet, an attack still came. And as much as America tried not to get in battle, 
guess what? They got into World War II and became a uh, significant ally for the victory in World War II. But we have a battle that we often try to opt out of as well. But as hard as we try, we're in a battle, a spiritual battle. And as believers, we will find ourselves in this battle. And we all have uh, uh, this experience of the spiritual warfare. We cannot opt out of this. And Paul is clear here, here at the end of Ephesians. Ephesians is an amazing theological discourse. And it's an amazing letter, an epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. But for us to understand why Paul is suddenly talking about the spiritual warfare... We have to look back at the entire book of Ephesians, and I promise I'm not preaching on the entire book of Ephesians. We're not going to be here for three hours, maybe two hours, but not three hours. But I am going to give a summary of Ephesians for you, just so we can get an understanding of what this is, why Paul is saying this here. So Ephesians 1 through 3, if you look at it as a whole, is just talking about the theology of salvation. It's who is Jesus? Why can we be saved? How can we be saved? What is this theology, the study of God, and how does it pertain to our salvation? Then the second half of chapters 4 through 6 is how do you live out that theology? The practice of our salvation. How do you walk as a Christian? He, he talks about things like Christian relationships and unity among Christians and imitating God, being like Christ in all things. He talks about the, the marriage relationship, the relationship between husband and wife and children and parents and then how you handle your jobs. And he, hand, he talks about how that theology in the first half changes everything in your life. So now everything in the, in the passage, in, in the book, has led up to this moment of Paul breaking down the spiritual battle. Because what we're going to see next week, and I hope you come back next week, because we're going to be doing a two-part series in Ephesians 6, is that the battle, the armor, the, the spiritual armor, is really a big summary of everything he's talked about in Ephesians 6. It's amazing how Paul lays this out. But here he starts talking about this spiritual realm, this spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. And Dr. Michael Heiser, a theologian, he calls this spiritual realm the unseen realm. He also wrote a book with the same title, The Unseen Realm. And this spiritual realm is something that we can easily miss as followers of Jesus because the cultural push of materialism and this cultural push of relativism. And it's so easy for us to lose sight of the unseen realm. And especially as believers, if we're honest, or as as Baptists, if we're honest, because of how others have misused the spiritual realm and have misused the understanding of Scripture the spiritual realm, we kind of get a little weary. We get a little scared at times if you start talking about the spiritual realm, demons, Satan, uh, the, the Holy Spirit at times. This whole spiritual realm thing, because we can't see it, it's kind of like, okay, I am uh, kind of get weary of it. Because there, there's really two pendulums. We either take it too seriously or we don't take it seriously at all. And so I hope we have a healthy understanding of this supernatural worldview. Because Scripture has a prominently supernatural worldview. Let's think about this for a moment. God created everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo, as theologians call it. That's supernatural. The fact that the, 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 the Red Sea could be parted, that's supernatural. The fact that the virgin birth can happen, that's supernatural. The fact that we can be saved by grace and faith alone, 
That supernatural, the fact that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again by the power of God, that's supernatural. So the Bible has a supernatural worldview, this, this spiritual realm. And we as followers of Jesus have to understand and see Scripture from that perspective, the same way Jesus and the authors of Scripture did as well. But even though we can't see this battle, we often experience this battle. That is a major part of this spiritual realm. John MacArthur, he said, The faithful Christian life is a battle. It is a warfare on, grand, on a grand scale. Because when God begins to bless, please hear what MacArthur is saying here. This is so true. Because when God begins to bless, Satan begins to attack. When God begins to bless, Satan begins to attack. And please hear my heart on this. The more a person or a church or a ministry is used by God, the enemy has a target on their back. The enemy wants to try to thwart God's purposes, the movement of God. But here's the reality. Here's a spoiler alert. He can't. God has already won victory is found in Jesus. And though we should not um, take the spiritual battle too seriously or not pay attention to it at all, we have to have a right understanding. And Ephesians 6 is very clear. We are also, we are God's children. We are God's disciples. We are followers of Christ. We are saints. We are saved by faith. But we're also soldiers. And as soldiers, we must fight. We are called to fight. As soon as we gave our lives to Jesus, we signed up for spiritual warfare. And we can confidently live in this battle because victory is found in the Lord. And God has given us all we need to have victory. And this morning, Paul lays out here in this passage three places for us to have victory in Jesus. Three places where victory is found. Number one... He begins pretty obviously, victory is from the Lord. Victory is from the Lord. It's very interesting that he starts off this way. So let's look at this. Finally, this, again, this transition from everything he's talked about, he's now putting the bow on the entire letter. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If the battle is supernatural, if the battle is spiritual, then we need supernatural and spiritual means to have victory. We cannot find victory in ourselves. Victory cannot be found in your strength or my strength. We are not strong enough. We need the power of Jesus to save us. We need the power of Jesus to change us. We also need the power of Jesus to help us live this Christian life and have the victory in the battle. And Paul's clear. We have to be strong. This is a command. This is an imperative in the Greek. It is, it is a strong command for us to be strong. Not in you, not in me, not in a policy, not in wealth or possessions. We are to be strong in the Lord alone. And I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 10, three times in three different ways, he uses three different words to reference God's strength and God's power. He says, number one, be strong. Number two, his strength. And number three, his might. Three different words to talk about the power of Jesus. So first off, he says, be strong. This is finding your capability in Christ alone. This is a word that has reference to finding capability and, and, and strength outside of yourself. Letting yourself be strong in something else. But then also he says, the strength of his might. 
The word strength here in this phrase is kratos. And kratos is the ability to do something. And this word is often used in reference to the ability and the power and dominion of God over everything. This is reference to God's sovereignty. How he has power and dominion over all things. But also he uses might. It's the word iskus. And it's the ability to function effectively. In reality, this word is talking about how God's power never fails. So put it all together is as followers of Jesus, we have full access to the God, the power of the God of the universe, who is, has dominion over all things and who will never fail with that power. That is the access that we have. And as we stay close to Jesus, as we draw close to Christ and abide in Him, in our relationship with Him, we stay close to the access of the mighty power of the God of the universe. And this power was proven, if you need proof of the power of God, you look at the resurrection. You look that, that Jesus was risen from the dead. He died for our sins and we can trust in him. And that very same power that rose Jesus from the dead, that lives within you. Jeremy Camp has a song about that. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives within you. As a follower of Jesus, you have full access to the power and the throne room of God. But here's the problem. The enemy's desire would love to take that focus. He can't take that power from you. There's nothing he can do to take you from the hand of God. If, uh, Romans 8 is very clear on that. There's nothing that can take us away from God's love. But what he can do is take our focus off of his love, focus off of his power. And if we let the enemy take our focus off of God's power, then that is when we begin to lose victory. And that's when we don't have victory. Because it's not that we, or God, is the one who fails. It's we fail to focus on God. And Satan would love nothing more than to take your eyes off of God's power in your life. And that is why I think, in my personal opinion, that is why I think Paul starts off this discussion about spiritual warfare with the power of God. It's not about, okay, here's your weapons, it's not about here's your plan of action. It's not about here's the strategy, here's who your enemy is. No, he begins with talking about the power of God because without realizing and grasping this idea, the rest of the battle is meaningless because we have to trust in the power of God to give us victory. And we may often feel weak and we may actually be weak. Scripture talks about that, that we can do nothing apart from Christ. But when we trust in the Lord, we can have victory. Because what the enemy means for evil, God uses for good and for his purposes. He can turn your weakness into a strength. And uh, I heard a story this week of a violinist, and I know about this much of music, but I did study this, this story about a violinist, and this guy named Isaac Perlman, he knew uh, the battle between overcoming your weakness and needing strength. Because this was a guy from birth, um, he, or not from birth, but early on as a kid, he had polio. And he now wears braces on both of his legs, and he walks with crutches. And so he knew the idea of being weak and needing something to strengthen you. But he, was a, he was a professional violinist. He was playing one time in, uh, in New York at this big concert, this big symphony. And all of a sudden, you heard a snap. And everybody knew what happened. One of his strings broke. 
And if you ever played a violin or know anything about the violin, it is very important for all strings to be working because without one string, it could almost be detrimental to the musician. And so you hear the snap and the entire audience goes silent. You just hear echo. And they're thinking, well, okay, they're going to come up with an announcement. He's going to go in the back, fix his violin, get a replacement. Like they're expecting somebody to walk out and just say, okay, 15-minute intermission and we'll be back shortly. No. What does Mr. Perlman do? He readjusts himself. He gets things situated. And he knows the violin so well. He knows how to overcome his weaknesses with everything he's learned in his life that he begins to play around that string and nobody noticed a thing apart from the snap. He was able to turn a weakness into a strength. And that is exactly what God does for us, is that he turns our weaknesses into a strength when we trust in him for the victory. No human intellect, no cleverness, no force can win the battle, but in the power of God. And in the power of God, we cannot and will not fail. Because here's the reality. David Jeremiah said this, we are not fighting for victory, we are fighting, fighting from victory. We are not fighting to have victory, we already have victory. We just have to realize it. We just have to have our focus on it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always, not sometimes, not most of the time, not 99.99999% of the time, but who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Our victory is ultimately found in Jesus. It is found in the cross, and when we look at the cross, we look at God's love for us and the power that we have access to. He is on the throne, and nobody can thwart God's power. We just have to trust it. But number two, we don't just see the victories from the Lord, but Paul lays out for us, victory is from knowing your enemy. Victory is from knowing your enemy. For us to have victory, we have to take the intel of our enemy. And here's the intel of our enemy. Here's the intelligence that we know about our enemy that Scripture gives us. The devil is real. The devil is real, and we need to know things about our enemy. There's a very popular show, used to be more popular back when it first came on than it is now, but it's called The Blacklist. And The Blacklist is a story of this FBI agency. And it's a secret agency. Somehow in these shows, there's always a secret agency that's underground and has its headquarters that somehow nobody knows about. But there's a secret agency. And this, this, they, they get this intel about the criminal world that they were totally oblivious to. They had no idea the depths of this criminal world until... They got intel from none other than FBI's most wanted on the show, Red Reddington. And he comes in and he surrenders himself to the FBI and he starts giving them this blacklist. It's where the title of the show comes from. He gives them this list of names that all these people, these CEOs, these people that you would just meet in the drugstore, these, these politicians, everybody everywhere who are these criminal warlords, and he is giving them these cases. And at first, the FBI is like, no, this is, this is nuts. We're not listening to a criminal un uh, warlord about the criminal underworld. There's no way that's possible. We can't believe that so-and-so be doing that. And they started actually investigating into these cases and listening 
to, to Reddington, and all of a sudden they realize it's deeper than we thought. What he says is actually happening. As the show progresses, you see it's just deeper and deeper and deeper. They didn't realize this criminal underworld that was involved in so many aspects of life until they had the intel. But once they got the intel, and once they knew about it, they were a step ahead of the curve, and they could actually figure out who these people were and stop them. And that is what Scripture does for us so frequently in here in Ephesians. We have the intel of who our enemy is and what we are to do about it and how we can handle it. But what we have to do is believe the intel and take it for what God is saying. Because we shouldn't assume also that, uh, that the enemy is not going to affect us. Because as we're going to see, the enemy is attacking every believer with spiritual battle. And the demonic realm, the spiritual realm, is real. He says in verse 11, before he gets into verse 12, he talks about the schemes of the devil. And this word schemes is very interesting. Because it's where we get our word in the Greek, method. And it's, a method is a way of doing something, right? But this specific word is in reference to a method or a plan involving a devious intent and a devious way to bring out an evil result. And then to take it a step further, this word is often connected to a wild animal who cunningly stalks on his prey and unexpectedly pounces on it to devour it. I remember as a kid, uh, my, and really still my favorite movie is The Lion King. And I love The Lion King. I remember watching it almost 24-7 when I, when I was a kid. And I remember uh, seeing the scene, and, and Simba is a little cub, and he's out with his friends, and, and his dad is, is teaching him how to stalk a prey. And he's getting behind the high grass, and he's, he's trying to get, uh, I think, a bug or, or some kind of bird or something, and he's, he's getting down, he's getting down, he's hiding, but obviously he doesn't know what he's doing. He, he's, not, he's not a full-fledged lion, let, a, a lion yet, and so he is trying to pounce on his prey, and he just can't get it. He just can't get it. He's not quite there yet. But that's not what this word is talking about. Some little Simba who's playfully stalking his prey. This is a ravenous lion seeking to devour something, or more specifically, someone. Why can I say this? 1 Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. He's saying, look, focus, pay attention. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, like what? A roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is who our fight is with. The enemy would love to devour us. And then he talks about, in verse 12, he starts saying here uh, in Ephesians 6, verse 12, for our struggle, our struggle. This word struggle is very interesting. Because some translations, the New King James specifically, translates it as wrestling. For we wrestle not with our flesh and blood. This idea of wrestling is really a great translation of this. Because it's talking about hand-to-hand combat. Like you're grabbing each other to the death. In the Roman times, 
Not like our wrestling nowadays. And if you need some intel about wrestling, go ask my bro, Kamen. He is a stud on wrestling. Uh, it was all about the WWE. And so I've gone to watch wrestling with him before, and it is a joy. Um, but I don't know anything about wrestling except for the fact that people pound each other to the ground and elbow and jump on things. It's pretty funny. Um, but wrestling now is not how it was back in the Roman times. It was a fight to the death. The only way you were leaving was if you were breathing. You were the only one alive in this wrestling match. But I was thinking about wrestling, and I was wondering, well, what, what is the longest wrestling match to ever been held? And it was 12 hours. 12 hours. And it was um, promoted by the Shockwave Impact Wrestling of USA, and uh, it was promoted as the Ultimate Iron Man match, and it was hosted in Shelby County Fairgrounds in Sydney, Ohio, on November 6, 2000, uh, 2010. And it lasted for 12 hours, but it wasn't just between two people, it was between four people, but still, nonetheless, four people rotating in and out for 12 hours. I can't imagine wrestling for 15 minutes, much less 12 hours. And that wrestling match went on and on and on. And as followers of Jesus and as people, as image bearers of God, we are in a wrestling match against an enemy who is out to not just bruise us, but destroy us. And Paul lays out for us this enemy and his demons. He talks about in verse 12 that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness. We don't know the details about exactly what is being described here. We do know this is the demonic realm. We do know this is uh, Satan's minions, if you will. But this is not uh, an exhaustive, detailed, comprehensive uh, uh, example of um, the demonic realm. But what we do know, uh, some, some believe it could be like the ranks of the demonic realm. Some believe it could be how they influence us. We're not quite sure. But what we do know is that this is a reference to the demonic realm, and it's led by Satan himself. And here's the reality, and this is where we get really timid about it. But demons are real. Demons are real, and they are active in our world. And I just want to stop just for a second, and, and we don't have time to talk and dwell into this a whole lot. I would love to, to discuss more on this. But there's a difference between oppression and possession. Oppression and possession. Now, Scripture's clear. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit's witness within. And as believers, we cannot be possessed. And praise the Lord for that. We have the power of God living within us. But as followers of Christ, we can be oppressed. And oppression is just the demonic activity around us and influencing our lives. And, and we will dive into this more in detail um, especially next week, because the armor of God is all about how do we defend and attack uh, from the enemy and from these tactics from the demonic realm. But according to Warren Wearsby, he says there's twofold purpose of demons. Twofold purpose. Number one is to hinder God's purposes. He wants to thwart God moving. And then number two, it is to further the kingdom of Satan. They are out for nothing good, only harm. And destruction. Next week, again, we will look at this in more detail and more clearly. But here's a summary. Here, here's just a three-part summary of the tactics of our enemy, of the demonic realm. First off, we see that the enemy is a distractor. 
The enemy is a distractor. If we lose focus on who our enemy is, we will lose impact in our passion for Jesus. And the enemy will love to distract you and distract me from who our real enemy is and from the mission and the real battle. Because he shares, us, he shares with us here who our real enemy is, but also who our real enemy is not. And this is how the enemy often distracts us. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against. If you have to like mark that out and put in bold, bold, all capital letters, not against. I encourage you to do that. Not against. What? Who? Flesh and blood. Who's flesh and blood? People. People. Our fight is not against people. Please hear me on that. Our fight is not against people. Our people is not the enemy. I remember when I was uh, first felt called to the ministry, I talked to one of my mentors, and I heard it, and I'll never forget it. He said, people are the ministry, not the enemy. Because so often the enemy would love to distort our perspective of people to where we think they are the enemy and not the ministry. And by the way, that's a word for all of us because we're all in ministry of people. People are the ministry. And Scripture is very clear that we're to love people. The first, the first command, the greatest commandment is love God and the second like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. The people is not the enemy. And here's what happens. If we look at people as the enemy, chaos happens in our lives. That is when chaos begins, is when we are distracted by thinking people are our enemy. But it's not just people who the enemy distracts us with, but it's also our, our pleasures, our desires, our possessions, our jobs. There's all different kinds of ways that the enemy can distract us. And here's the reality. The enemy knows exactly what distracts you and what distracts me the most. The enemy knows exactly how to distract you. He's been doing it for thousands of years. There's nothing new under the sun. He knows exactly how to take your eyes off of Jesus. And he would love to take your eyes off of God's power and off of who the real enemy is and who the battle is against. And we have to stay focused. That's why in 1 Peter 5 eight he says, Be sober, be vigilant, stay attentive, be focused on who your real enemy is. And who that is? He is the devil prowling around like a roaring lion. But also the enemy is not just a distractor, he's also a deceiver. The enemy is a deceiver. Another tactic of the enemy is deception. And the majority of spiritual battle, the majority of the spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in is not a battle of politics, it's not a battle of, of um, policies, it's not a battle uh, of, of different things, it is a battle of the mind. It's a battle of the mind. And the enemy is out for how you think. If the enemy can change how you think, how you view God, how you view Scripture, how you view the world, if he can change that, he's got you. Because it's a battle for the mind. And he does this through false teachings. He does it through cults, through leaders, through religions, and also through human ideologies. Because if he can... Uh, change scripture, if he can have false teachings and false gospels going into your mind and you believe it, he's got you. 
And the, and the New Testament warns frequently of false teachings and false gospels. Let me just kind of clarify what a false teaching and a false gospel is. A false teaching is anything that distorts and denies portions of the gospel, Jesus, and Scripture. If it distorts the Scriptures, if it distorts the gospel, and it, if it distorts Jesus, it is a false teaching and a false gospel. But here's where we miss it. It's often very subtle. It's often not very noticeable. Because, let's be honest, false teachings and false teachers don't just hold up a sign saying, hey, I'm a false teacher. Hi, you know, look over here. Believe me, I'm a false... That's, that's not how it works. If it worked that way, nobody would believe it. It looks good. It looks true. And oftentimes, it can look scriptural. And yet, it is a false teaching. And if it's a false teaching, it is demonic deception. And we have to be weary of anything that looks like Scripture, but twists it in some way. It's like the Trojan horse. Looks fantastic, but once you bring it in, it only causes destruction. And we have to know truth so we can battle lies. This is how you know false teaching. No matter what the false teaching is, if you're wondering, well, okay, great. Well, how do I know what's a subtle false teaching? The more you know this word, the more you know Scripture, the more you can identify what a false teaching is. No matter how beneficial, hey, here's the deal. False teachings work. Just because it works doesn't make it biblical. And a false teaching and a false teacher will even use Scripture and distort it and twist it. And if we don't know Scripture well enough, then we can easily fall for it and miss Jesus and miss the gospel. And it can change how we live, it can change how we think, and it can change how we serve Jesus. So here's a question that may be hard for some of us here. But here's a question. If you are presented with a false teaching, do you know Scripture well enough to identify it? If you are presented with a false teaching, do you know Scripture well enough to identify it as a false teaching? And that's the question you have to answer for yourself. And if you don't, here's the good news. Get into the Word. Get into Scripture. Know it. God has given us all we need for victory. All we have to do is access it. All we have to do is use the resources that God has given us. But the detriment is if we don't know God's Word, if we don't know Jesus, if we don't draw closer to Him, then we can easily, without knowing, fall into false teachings and false ideas that will ultimately, slowly but surely, ultimately take us away from Jesus into a place we never thought we would go. And we have to identify that in our lives, in the people that we love. And we do that through Scripture. But it's not just through deception. It's not just through distraction that the enemy attacks us. The enemy also is out to destroy us. The enemy is a destroyer. The enemy is a destroyer. This is, this is ultimately where it leads to. John 10.10, 10, Jesus said this of our enemy. The thief comes only. Well, there's nothing good about our enemy. There's nothing good about what he wants to do. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. We focused on the second part, but let's look at the first part. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. 
The enemy wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your testimony. He wants to destroy your relationships. He wants to destroy your peace. He wants to destroy your passion for Jesus. He wants to destroy your view of people. He wants to destroy everything about you and take everything away from you. And he wants to destroy, ultimately, your soul if you are not a follower of Jesus. He wants to destroy your life. There is nothing good about the enemy. But there is always good about Jesus. And that is where our eyes are focused. We don't have to focus so much on, on what we have. Because think about Job. The enemy tried to take everything away from Job. Everything in his life. So what? That he would deny God. Job's, uh, Satan said, look God, Job's only serving you because you've given him everything he's ever wanted. So if you take it all away, then he's going to deny you. And so many times... When things happen in our life, we begin to deny God. We begin to think God's attacking us. And if we just trust him, that he's in control, that he's sovereign, and that he, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8 is so clear on that. No matter what is taken from you, no matter what happens in your life, no matter how hard you are attacked, if you trust in Jesus, you know that you have everything. If you have Jesus, you have everything. And our battle, our victory comes from knowing who our enemy is, but focusing on Jesus as the victor over our enemy. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And nobody is going to thwart his throne and power. But lastly, as we come to close tonight, or this morning, number three is victory is from being prepared. Victory is not just from the Lord. Victory is not just from knowing our enemy, but victory is from being prepared, taking the resources God has given us and preparing ourselves for battle. He has two commands in verse 11 and 13 that give the same thought process. Put on and take up. Put on and take up. Another play on words here. And it's amazing what Paul is saying. So first he says put on. And this word put on is a reference to something that you put on and then you keep it on permanently. You do not do anything to take it off. You never, ever, 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 ever take it off. To put on the full armor of God and always have it on. But then he says, take it up. And take up is not like you pick up something and then you're putting it down. This idea of take up is that you take it and you take it with you and you hold it tightly and you let nothing happen to it. Um, if you go overseas and you take your passport, what are you keeping with you? Your passport, you are not letting anything happen to that passport. If you lose your passport, it's going to be very difficult to get back. You hold on to your passport, you hold on to your money, you hold on to your luggage, you hold on to the things that are valuable to you. And here, um, just in our daily lives, there's something that we hold on to, most of us, for dear life. And it's our phones. We hold on to that for dear life. And it's so, it's so funny because I find myself doing this. Um, but if you leave your phone, which rarely happens because it's part of your, like your attire, you're getting ready, you're getting dressed, you put your pants on, you put your, your shirt on, you get your shoes on, uh, you put your hat on if you wear that often, you make sure your watch is on if you're guys, make sure all your bracelets, necklaces, your, all your gear is on, then you put your belt on, your wallet, your keys. Oh, wait, the phone. Okay, got my phone in my pocket, I'm good. It's like, it's like part of our attire now. Do we keep it with us? And if you leave it, what are you doing? If you're driving five, ten miles down the road, you're whipping it back and you're going back home to get your phone. 
It's like, I mean, there, there is some truth that, okay, people are going to need to contact us. You may have kids and need to contact you. Okay, yes, I get that. But oftentimes, it's because we don't want to feel disconnected. If we don't have our phone, we're disconnected from the world. I can't get on social media. I can't text somebody. Like, like we just feel, like, empty without it. And whether that's good or bad or indifferent, that's not the point. The point is, it's part of us. It's who we are at times. But how much more important is the Word of God and the armor of God? That it should be part of us. That we should take up the full armor of God and take it with us. And we should, just like we don't leave our, um, our houses without our phones, we should never wake up in the morning without having the full armor of God at our disposal. We should never, ever, ever leave without it because it is through the means that God has given us, through his armor, that we have victory. And as we live a spirit-filled life, and as we trust in Jesus, we have the victory. Next week, we're going to look at the armor of God in details. I hope you come back. I hope you take this morning and then come back next week. We're looking at uh, all of the elements of the armor of God and how we can have it and use it for victory. But as we wrap up this morning, I just want to ask you, is your Christian life defined by victory? Or is your Christian life defined by defeats? Because we can be followers, blood-bought, born-again believers in Jesus, but we can live a defeated life because we're not focused on the power and the full access that we have to God. But maybe you're living in defeat because you've really never given your life to Christ. Maybe you're seeing yourself in defeat after defeat after defeat in your mind and in your heart and in your spirit just because you haven't fully surrendered everything to Jesus. And we're going to have a time of invitation here in just a moment. And if we uh, can focus on Jesus in our life, we can have the victory. So as Stephen and the band comes up to play our invitation, uh, that is my question for you, is are you living a victorious life? Is your Christian life defined by victories or defeats? And with every head bowed, every eye closed as we uh, wrap things up this morning, I just want to ask you, what is coming in the way of your victory in Jesus? Maybe it's how you think. Maybe it's how you view Scripture. Maybe it's some sin. Or maybe, like I said a few moments ago, it's the fact that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust it in Christ. The Bible is clear that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that can be you this morning. This 4th of July cannot just be when you celebrate the freedom of America, but it can be when you celebrate your freedom from the bondage of sin and self. And if you turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and you trust in Jesus, that's where real freedom that can never be taken away is found. Mm-hmm.